Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, a joy to be together, even if we're not together together. It's wonderful that we can at least be together through technology, that we have this available now. Um, had this been, you know, even just 20 years before, this wouldn't be possible for us to be able to live stream services and to be able to share the word with you and to be able now to sing, now that we have the correct licensing to do so. Uh, what a wonderful addition. I think that song, His Mercy is More, has got to be one of my favorite songs right now. Um, one that I find myself singing and humming quite frequently. And uh, it's a joy to be able to come to you guys this morning and uh, be able to share through um, as we go into Passion Week. And, you know, today being uh, Palm Sunday, referred to as Palm Sunday. And we know that uh, this Friday is Good Friday, the day that Christ was crucified. And next Sunday, which we refer to as Resurrection Sunday, a.k.a. Easter, um, we get to celebrate Christ rising from the dead. And we get to tie these things together. And today I want to really do that. We're going to be in John chapter 12, doing verses 1 through 19. And so if you'll turn with me to John chapter 12, we see here a little bit of background leading into this. Jesus had come to Bethany, and he had come previous to this time, going in. Uh, he had heard that Lazarus had died, and if you remember the story, he even lingered when he heard that Lazarus was sick. And Lazarus, by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had died, and Mary and Martha had called out to him saying, you know, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened, but whatever you do, we know that God will do it for you. And uh, Jesus had came and wept with them, and he had uh, eventually come and said, Lazarus, come out. He came out of the tomb and was risen again, foreshadowing Jesus' own resurrection. And afterwards, there was plots against Jesus. There were plots against him, and he ended up leaving Bethany and going out to an area of Ephraim, which is up north and uh, up north of Jerusalem. And so at this point where we're picking up the story today, he's come back to Bethany, back to Lazarus and his, his family, Mary and Martha. And so we're going to pick up here starting in verse 1, and it says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So we see here, um, he's come back to this area of Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem. And just when you think of geography, if you think of the Mount of Olives, you've got Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem. And then Bethany is on the other side. So he's on one side of the mountain on the east side. And uh, Jerusalem is about two miles to the west on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is here with his people, the people who believe in him, the people who know that he is something more than just a man or a wise teacher, people who are beginning to recognize that there is something bigger going on here. He's with his disciples. He's with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we can see what kind of welcome he gets, right? They're glad to see him. They're holding a big feast for him, a big dinner. And so he's welcomed, and he is dining with them. 
And he is in a place where he is with his people. And Mary comes along and she anoints him with this perfume, very expensive perfume that would equate to probably a value of about a year's wages. And she uses this upon Jesus. And in the other gospels, it refers to her anointing his head as well. And here we see that she's anointing his feet and even taking her very hair and, and cleaning his feet, wiping his feet and anointing him. Now, I know we talk about this often at communion, how a foot washing is one of the lowliest things that a servant would do. And here's Mary coming to Jesus and putting herself completely in a, a position of humbleness to, to anoint his feet in this total act of servanthood. And then we see Judas Iscariot on the other side showing himself. And his intent here is more than just greed. It's also pride, right? He wants to call out what he sees wrong here. He wants to criticize and say, hey, why wasn't this done for a bigger purpose or some better thing? Why would you waste it like this? He had not just greed in his heart, but pride. He wanted to enrich himself, and he also wanted the power that came with the value of what was in that jar. And you stop and think him being keeper of the money bag, who was it who got to dole that out to the poor? Who got to give that out to different people and different organizations that might have taken care of the poor? Right? There's power that came with this, influence. And he wanted to capture that for himself. He's like a tear among the wheat. When we think of Jesus and he, he gave that analogy of the wheat and the tares and that these tares are there and it looks like wheat and it's hard to distinguish the difference. And if you rip them out, you could rip out the wheat with it. And here we see Judas like a tear among the wheat. And his true purpose is going to be made known here in just a few days with his full-on betrayal of Jesus Christ. And he's acting the part, and he may appears to be the part, but Christ is going to bring all that to light. His own view is his power, not about Christ's power and how to serve it. Instead, he wants to serve himself. We see in verse 7 how Jesus addresses this, and he says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. We see here how Jesus is foretelling his death. And people here, you know, we're not sure exactly how they took this because we know how they're going to celebrate him coming. But here Jesus is saying straight out, I'm not here long. You, I won't be here always with you. Now we get to see the whole story now, right? We get to see numerous times throughout scripture where Jesus foretold of his death. And at the time, these are probably words going a little bit in one ear and out the other, or going over their heads or they kind of discount it because, you know, Jesus is always there with them now, right? He's, he's there today. He'll be there tomorrow. And uh, often looking and thinking, they're not thinking of the fact that his, his end might look very different from what they have in mind. We kind of turn and we see, starting in verse 9, how Jesus is with those who are not his people. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so we see there's this crowd gathering in Bethany, right? Jesus is there, and they want to see this confirmation of a miracle. They've heard of Lazarus being raised from the dead. They want to see him in the flesh, see him for himself, live and in person. And we know how Jesus, when he had taken and gave, raised Lazarus from the dead, right before he did, he wept. He wept with Mary and Martha. 
And this wasn't weeping because Lazarus was dead, because he knew what he was about to do. He knew the miracle that was going to happen. Instead, he wept with his people. He wept in their humanity. He was so deeply moved by sin and death and knowing what that does to people and this effect that it has, that he uh, knew the miracle he was about to do, yet he wept with them. So the people have come here to see this teacher they've heard so much about and to confirm this story of Lazarus. They wanted to see what was happening. And so the rulers decided they wanted to kill Lazarus as well. So many Jews are believing in Jesus, and the, Jews, the Jewish leaders see their power draining away. They want to destroy the sign of, of God's miracle. They want to destroy the evidence, take away the proof. And so these people coming to see Lazarus is, a, is somewhat of a rebuke of them because this is a power that they don't have to raise someone from the dead that Jesus has demonstrated. They don't have that kind of power. But the people believe that Jesus does, and he, they're seeing the proof of it. And so we see how the people are anticipating Christ coming to Jerusalem, and they're, they're readying their hearts for something very different than what Christ is going to do. But they anticipate him coming. So we see in verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they're setting this up, right? They, they go out, they cut palm branches. They, they're preparing a way for him. There's thoughts going through. This is big news. This is the biggest news of their, of their lives, and they don't even quite realize it. They know it's something special. They're preparing this dignitary's welcome. And so it's like a victory parade, and the palm branches symbolize victory. That's often used at that time to symbolize victory. And we know in the Synoptic Gospels, that Jesus actually sent, and I'm, we'll get here now, he had sent ahead for a young donkey and sat on it, Let's see in verse 14, and he sent the disciples ahead and he said, if anybody gives you a hassle, tell them the Lord needs it, and they did so, they went and retrieved a donkey, and the, the, uh, the apostles, the, his disciples put their uh, cloaks upon it, they created a, a special way he sat on it, they put their cloaks down and he sat upon it and rode in, and it says this in Zechariah 9.9, uh, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And here he is, coming in, sitting on the cloaks of his disciples, upon a donkey no one has written, ridden. And in the other gospels, it states that people didn't just lay down palm branches, but they laid down their very garments. They laid down their cloaks in front of him. We see the shouts that there were. It says this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And the term Hosanna is one of joy, it's one of adoration, it's one of celebration. And in the gospel of Luke, it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In John, it says that they were saying this, even the king of Israel. And so this is very significant for a number of reasons. Obviously, the Jewish leaders had been sort of a, almost like a para-government organization. You know, the Romans are ruling over this land, over, over Jerusalem. But the Jewish leaders had some level of power and autonomy, and they had that, and they held that very tightly over the people. So when Jesus is coming in and they're saying he's a king, right, that's frustrating the Romans who are, who are holding the power, and that also frustrates the Jewish leaders who don't want to cede power. They don't want to give it up. 
And something even more significant is stated in the Gospel of Mark. It said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And so invoking the name David is a big deal. We know that Jesus descended from the line of David. But also there's a number of other things that we see with the, when we reference the father, David. We stop and think in 1 Samuel 18, after uh, victory over the Philistines, when Saul and David came in and there were celebrations, people were coming out of the houses and the women were singing and dancing with tambourines and saying that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. They were given David more glory than Saul. And what did Saul do? He knew he once had God's protection and he knew he had God's blessing, but God had lost favor with him and that David had been chosen. Saul began plotting David's death and persecuting him. We see the Pharisees doing the same thing. We see the Pharisees, where Christ is doing these signs, these miracles that they can't do. Obviously, he has favor with God. Obviously, they don't understand it, but that he is God. But these people are coming out and cheering Jesus and cheering on a power they don't have. And just as the Jewish leaders watch with anger and jealousy the way Saul watched David, they begin plotting as well. Saul plotted against David, and they begin plotting against Christ to put him to death. So turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to go to Luke 19 and start in verse 37. So here we see the triumphal entry, parallel passage. And it says this in verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so he's come from the east side to the west side, he now has Jerusalem in his sight. It says, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all, all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We see here Christ is saying he would not be denied his praise. If not from the people, then from creation itself. And Luke goes on to say this in verse 41. He says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon the other in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here we see Christ weeping for the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. He's weeping for those who are not his people, the people who don't believe in him, the people who are rejecting him. We know that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and there was this Jewish diaspora where they were spread out among the world. They were sent out from Jerusalem. And Jesus knows this is coming, a time when no stone would be left upon the other. And he's weeping for them because he knows their ju that judgment will be upon them. And when we stop and we look at the difference between how Jesus wept before he raised Lazarus from the dead and how Jesus is weeping over uh, Jerusalem. So when he knew that Lazarus was dead, he saw Mary and Martha weeping. 
He knew the miracle he was about to do, but he joined in their grief, not for Lazarus, but for sin and death that humanity experiences. And let's look at how he's weeping now. You know, he, he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, weeping with his people. But turning here on the west side of the Mount of Olives, he weeps for those who are not his people. The people who are hard-hearted. The people spiritually blinded who couldn't see that their Savior had come. And he's weeping for this judgment that's upon them. And he weeps for their eternal souls that have rejected his atoning work. It's a different weeping. On one side, he wept with his people. And on this side, he weeps for the people that should be his, but are rejecting him. When we go back to John chapter 12, we see here, starting in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They see power slipping away. And they don't recognize that the gathering crowd in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover is actually celebrating the true Passover, and they just don't realize it yet. So this triumphal entry happened on the 10th day of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. And on the 10th day of Nisan in the true Passover, in Ex or the first Passover in Exodus, was the day when they chose the Passover lambs, and they were to bring them into their home. And it was to be a male lamb without blemish, and it was brought into the home to be examined for four days. It was observed to verify that it was clean, it was healthy, it was not sick, it was not blemished. And here on the 10th day of Nisan, Christ is entering Jerusalem. And he spent those days that week teaching in the temple, proving that he was without blemish. He was confronted by the Pharisees and Sadducees there in the temple. And he was never found guilty of anything. He was tested and found to be without blemish. And even when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he stated that. He said, I've taught in the temple for these days, and I was never arrested. And even in front of Pilate, Pilate testified to his innocence. But these people that welcomed him in had a whole different expectation. They were thinking politics. They were thinking economics. They were thinking freedom from the Romans. They wanted a king like David to rule over them. They weren't thinking of a savior. They weren't thinking beyond that. Jesus didn't fill their expectations because during that week, here they, they praised him coming in as a conqueror, as a king, but then that week he gave them the hard teaching. And some of the things he taught during that week in the temple, Jesus cleansed the temple, driving out those who were robbers and money changers and, and merchants. He told them whoever loves his life must lose it. He foretold the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, that there would be coming persecution, there would be wars, there would be famine, there would be plagues. He told them to pay their taxes and render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And that's exactly the opposite of what they expected out of him. No one felt good with this hard teaching. 
And this is why in the end, when they had their chance, they asked for Barabbas. And they said to crucify Jesus. And on the 14th day of Nisan, when Passover lambs were slaughtered, Jesus was on the cross shedding his blood and his body being broken for our sin. He was the true Passover lamb. And his blood was spilled that we might be saved. That those who trust and call on him in confession and repentance would be saved. And we see when he died, the disciples were in hiding. The people had Barabbas. Judas Iscariot had betrayed him. Peter had denied him. There was no one there to give him praise. And what happened? The very rocks cried out just as Jesus foretold. There was an earthquake. There was darkness. The veil in the temple was torn in two. Creation itself cried out at his death when everyone else was in hiding. And for us looking backwards, it's easy for us to see these lessons and to have the whole of the Bible and to be able to see it. For people at the time, we see that there were kind of three ways they were interacting with Jesus in John 12. We see the Pharisees who created their own law and fought against Christ. They loved their law and their power and their own ideas more than recognizing a Savior, more than confession and repentance and recognizing he was the Son of God. There were those who were lukewarm, the people who came on Palm Sunday and laid down branches and laid down their cloaks and welcomed him with open arms. But, and again, they wanted to claim Christ for their own purpose. They were hoping for the spectacle, the show, for prosperity. They wanted Jesus for their own agenda. And then there were the disciples. And even the disciples failed and were confused and weren't sure what to do. Yet those true disciples were blessed with a faith in the grace of God. They knew in the deity of Christ and the salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They didn't quite fully get it yet. The Holy Spirit hadn't opened their eyes yet. But God was doing a mighty work through them. That just as Passover was done in Exodus time, before they left Egypt, and the lambs were slain and eaten, and their blood was put over the doorpost, here Christ met with his disciples before his crucifixion and they shared the wine that represented the blood of Christ and they broke the bread that represented his body. So too do we get to break his body and drink of his blood when, as we do communion and as we celebrate um, the ordinance of communion. And I think we see these same three interactions with Christ in our own time. We live in a world full of Pharisees, those who create their own law, their own ideologies, their own philosophies, false religions, and they love that more than Christ. Their eyes are not open to the truth of Christ. They create their own law and hold their own standard. We talk in Romans 1 how people all have a law written on their heart. God has written his law on their heart, yet we distort it and we pervert it and we want to make it our own. And we want to change it to what we want. And we still have that in this day, the same mentality, the same mistakes. But we also have the lukewarm. We also have those who want to claim Christ for their own purpose, and they want to claim his name for prosperity or health or warm feelings. But when it all comes down, they don't want to pay the cost of discipleship. We don't want to mess up our weekend, or we don't want to be seen as as religious we want to be spiritual but not religious 
There's times when the lukewarm say Jesus is just all right as long as he doesn't ask for much, as long as he doesn't get in my way, as long as I can fulfill what I want to fulfill and I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. And then there's disciples of Christ, like us. We're often confused. We're often hiding. We're often struggling with the gospel that we've been given. Yet we're compelled. We're compelled to search his word for truth. We're compelled to run back into his arms, to his grace. We're compelled to speak of him to those around us. We're compelled to serve him with our time and our resources. We're not compelled by our own heart, because our own heart's going to be lukewarm at best. The Spirit gives us the strength to come and confess and repent again. The Spirit gives us humbleness to call on him again. The Spirit gives us assurance that we're his children again and again. Folks, we are blessed that we can have this Bible that shows us the first Passover in the Exodus time, the true Passover in Jesus' time, and that we can celebrate that Passover, that true Passover again and again with communion, with coming together, with breaking the bread and drinking of the cup and remembering the Christ who died on the cross for our sins, not making our own law, but instead subordinating ourselves to his and not trying to save ourselves through our actions or activities or create our own standard of living. Instead, we pray for Christ to continually break us down and bring us back to his word. I pray that for each of us as we go through this week and remember the first Passover and remember Christ's crucifixion, that we remember also his resurrection that made all this possible, his defeat over sin and death, Pray that you talk about it with your families, that you share it with your children, that you teach it to anyone who will listen, that we can celebrate this week, even though it comes with the grief of knowing Christ died on the cross, it comes with the wonderful salvation that comes with it in his resurrection, that we can rejoice and be glad in it. I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Lord, you are merciful and you are wise. You sent your Son to die on the cross for our sin. Lord, you gave the Passover in Exodus time that point forward to Christ. And you've given, a, you've given us the Lord's Supper that we celebrate, looking back to what Christ has done for us. And God, we know in glory we will eat with you and we will drink with you once again. And God, we pray you sustain us and sustain our faith. And Lord, help us always to turn to your grace. God, it is through your grace alone, through faith alone that we are saved. And I pray you strengthen our hearts that we can stand up to anything and everything that may try to tear that down. God, give us wisdom and give us your grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. As a benediction, I want to point ahead to where uh, we see ourselves in Scripture. And for when we are disciples, we will be with Christ one day. And John writes this in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let us look forward to the time when we get to share that with Christ, that we get to give him the glory forever. 
we get to be with him all in one accord, giving him praise and giving him glory. I pray that you have a safe week. I pray that you uh, read and meditate over scripture of this final week of the, the earthly life of Christ before his crucifixion and dwell on just the wonderful sacrifice he did for us. We thank you. I pray you have a great week.